Hi, how are you? It's good to see you, and I just want to say a big welcome to all of our campuses actually joining us this weekend, so Central Abbey, East Abbey, and across the shore over there in Mission on the North Shore in those Smoky Mountains, and even the guys in West Court. So welcome here. We are in John's Gospel, John chapter 7, so you're going to want to have your Bibles. Uh, we're in a text, it's a long chunk, uh, over 30 verses, and you'll probably want to follow along because we'll jump about here and there, but we are in John's Gospel picking up where we left off. You should know that by now. So anyway, we'll just dive right in. You know what, I, I like uh, when people have both and solutions to the problems of life. Don't you like that? Uh, either or situations often frustrate me. So when someone tells me something can't be done, I like to hear what's the solution. Like, don't tell me it can't be done. Tell me uh, there's a different way of getting it done. Uh, a both and type of a solution. We can figure it out. It might be a little bit more complicated, but surely uh, we could accomplish both of these wonderful good things that we want to do. I think there's a number of just simple illustrations in life. Uh, so a newlywed couple who happens to have both parents in town, and it's the first Christmas season, right? Whose parents do we go to? Why does it have to be either or? Why could it not be both and? I mean, two Christmas dinners are better than one, right? You probably know the story of William Wilberforce. So the youngest member of British Parliament ever elected, he was in his early 20s, and then he was radically converted to faith in Christ, and he was thinking of leaving politics and going into full-time pastoral ministry, and a group of friends gathered around him, and they said, hey, uh, we have heard you're considering leaving politics because you think that you can do more good for the world in the church. You're going to serve the Lord, or you're going to serve your country. May we humbly suggest that you can do both. And if you know his story, that you will know that Wilberforce was pretty well single-handedly in charge of leading the abolition of the slave trade 200 years ago in Britain. So a very, very important time. Uh, one of my maybe lighter and favorite family memories, my Uncle Hank. So none of you will have ever met him. He passed a number of years ago, but I lived with Hank and Muriel for a year after college. Uh, he was a retired Air Force pilot. Uh, he taught me concrete finishing as a trade. That's what he did in his retirement. And my Aunt Muriel loved to bake pie, and Uncle Hank loved to eat pie. And it was sort of a family joke that at the end of a meal, if she had made a pie that day, it would be, do you want your pie now or later? And his answer was always the same, yes, both. So there's a lot of times when both and are possible. They might be a little bit more complicated, as I've said, but they're worth it. Two Christmas dinners versus one. If you can have your pie both now and later, why wouldn't you? And why leave the secular world, so-called, to serve the Lord when your greatest impact for the Lord may actually be being staying put in that so-called secular occupation. But you will also know that there are times and places where both and is not possible, where it has to be an either-or decision, where you have to draw a line in the sand. And so when a young couple stands at the marriage altar and they're sharing their vows, they are making a decisive decision at that moment in time. And, and some of the old wedding vows, which you don't necessarily hear them anymore, but the old wedding vows went like this. Will you love, comfort, honor, and keep in sickness and in health, and then here's the key line, and forsaking all others. Be faithful to him or to her as long as you both shall live. So in that moment in time, you are choosing either the path of faithfulness or infidelity. You cannot have both. 
It is no either or in that situation, it, uh, or no both and in that situation. It is definitely an either or. And so every public declaration of faith carries this same thought with it. So when we gather for baptism services, it is for individuals who are publicly declaring themselves in front of a watching audience and in front of the Lord that I am declaring myself publicly as a follower of Jesus. When parents bring their kids in dedication, it is a public statement that we are choosing as parents to raise our kids in a way that will honor the Lord. And there are so many examples of this throughout the scriptures. Uh, one of my favorite stories is the, the standoff between Elijah and Ahab and Jezebel. And it comes to a head on a mountain made of caramel, which I loved that story as a kid. <laughs> so Ahab gathers the prophets and the people, and they come together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near and said to the people, uh, to the people and said, how long will you go on limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. The NIV puts it this way, how long will you waver? How long are you going to go back and forth? Either God is God or Baal is God. You can't have it both ways. You can't be sitting on the fence on this particular issue. Or Joshua at the end of his life, as he's giving the challenge to the children of Israel, as he is getting ready to pass, and he says this, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. A decisive moment in time decision. So we're studying in John's gospel, obviously. And John told us up front why he wrote this book, that he was unapologetically trying to convince us that Jesus Christ was indeed who he said he was, that believing that Jesus is the Son of God and by believing in him that you may have life in his name. There's no middle ground. Believe in him or don't believe in him is what John is basically saying. And life is in the balance. Uh, Gary Burge, in his commentary on John, the letters to John, he says this, when the gospel is preached in the world, Jesus goes on trial. Every hearer must choose which voice he or she will embrace, which side he or she will choose. There is no middle place. So throughout history, Jesus has actually been a divisive character. Jesus has been a dividing point, if you will. And many, many people, of course, will acknowledge that he was a good man, that he was a great moral teacher, perhaps, that he was a great philosopher, that he had a lot of great things to say. And yet, when you begin to examine the exclusive claims of Jesus, that he claimed to be God, that he claimed to be the only way to reconcile with God, his exclusive claims, many will stumble at those words. So we're picking up where we left off last week. We're in the middle of chapter 7. And the next few weeks, uh, I, I think I mentioned it last week, but I'll mention it again. It is a long run on sentence or conversation, if you will. The next three and a half chapters, chapter seven, eight, nine, and the first half of chapter 10, likely took place maybe all in the same week, but certainly in the matter of a few short days. There's a timestamp, there's the Feast of Booths that we're going to talk about, and then three months later, the Festival of Hanukkah, or the Feast of Dedication. They're three months apart, and those are the timestamps that are in here. And it looks like the next three and a half chapters are all one long conversation. Uh, you might say, well, why do you think that? Well, just because of the, the common themes that are through it. Now, we're going to talk about the themes of water and light, and those two themes have a lot to do with the Festival of Tabernacles. 
If you trace your way through these three and a half chapters, you're going to see a conversation with Jesus again and again. This man has a demon, or this man is crazy. This man is out of his mind. And you will see that same conversation come up in chapter 7, twice in chapter 8, and again near the end of this passage in chapter 10. Then you also see this comment that there's division among the people. It seems to be the the key theme in this particular chapter, 7, chapter 9, and chapter 10 again, there was division. So you see these similar themes. And all of that to say that in the next few weeks, there's going to be a lot of repetition. There's going to be a lot of going over the same material. And what we're going to see today is this theme that Jesus divides and Jesus satisfies. So it's a long text. We're going to read it as a whole, and then we'll come back to it. So 30-some verses here. So just buckle up, and here we go. Beginning at verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I came from. come from, but I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him. For I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we can't find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this is really the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? This crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and he was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Okay, it's a long chunk. And the first thing that jumps off the page is the fact that Jesus brings division. He brings division of opinion, division of response. The people are divided. The leaders are divided. If you just trace your way through that text and the text before it and the text after it, and you look for the phrases some, many, 
and others. You'll see it several times. Some of them, but others. Many of them, but others. There's this contrast back and forth, some, but. Beginning back in verse 11 and 12, last week's text, before Jesus even began teaching, before he had arrived in Jerusalem, they were already talking about him. They were already divided. Some said he's a good man, and others are like, no, he's leading people astray. But now that he's begun to teach, it heats up several more layers. And the first is this. Their debate is centered around their expectation of who and what the Messiah was to do and be. They had these things in their mind that the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah was coming. And when he arrives, when he appears, he is going to do thus and so. And so we see it three times. When the Christ appears, first of all, in verse 27, they say, when he appears, we won't know where he comes from. Now, that's an interesting thought. The first century Jews had this thought in their mind that the Messiah would just appear unexpectedly. He would appear suddenly. It's like he would come out of nowhere. And and you go, well, where did they get that idea? Well, probably from Daniel 7, verse 13. The Son of Man comes riding on the clouds. We actually sing that phrase in a couple of the songs that we sing around these days. He comes riding on the clouds. Very much like our understanding of the second coming of Christ. The fact that we believe that it's imminent, that we cannot know the day or the hour of the appearing of Christ, and so we're told to watch and be ready and to be waiting for him, and we can read the signs of the times, we can see the indications that scriptures give us, but Jesus told us no man will know the day or the hour. And so in a similar way, this first century Jewish community was like, we won't know where he comes from, he's just going to show up. We know this guy comes from Galilee, can't be the Christ. Secondly, when he arrives or when he appears, they ask the question, well, the Messiah surely won't do any more miracles than this guy has done. That as well is an interesting thought in verse 31. Because as you're reading through the Old Testament and all the prophecies regarding the Messiah, there weren't an awful lot of hope that he was going to be a miracle worker so much. The expectation of the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, was that he was going to be a ruler The government is going to be on his shoulders. He is going to be a military and a political leader. He's going to come and he's going to push away either Egypt or Babylon or Greece or the Romans in this case and punt them out of power. And he's going to take power. He's going to be a king and he's going to rule. And yes, there were images that he will bind up our wounds and he will set the captive free. But often they were thought of as more as metaphorical. He will bring healing to the nation. And yet they ask the question, when the Messiah arrives, when the Christ arrives, is he actually going to do any more miracles than this guy's done? And they're debating among themselves. And then we see that phrase again, when the Christ arrives or when he appears, down in verse 41 and 2, will he not come from Bethlehem, not Galilee? Now, this is an interesting debate here. Because you're like, how much did these people know about where Jesus had come from? We know from the book of Micah that the Christ would be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. Did they not know what we know today, that he was indeed born in Bethlehem, that he was a refugee in Egypt, and then he moved to Nazareth to fulfill the prophecy that he's a Nazarene, and then later to Capernaum, and that he started his ministry in Galilee. All they're seeing is he's come to us from Galilee. And we understand that the Messiah will first, if not at least be born in Bethlehem, he will first show up in Bethlehem. He's going to come to the city of David. What's he doing up in the, you know, the redneck territory of Galilee? What's he doing up there? And so the Jewish mind couldn't comprehend it. You want to start a debate this week? Just ask the question of your friends or family members. 
What do you think about the second coming of Christ? What do you think about the second coming? Is he going to come unexpectedly? Or are there decisive world events that must happen and therefore we can watch the news We can watch the rise and fall of various political leaders and various events that must happen around the world before he comes again. We can read the signs of the times. Is there going to be a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ before the new heavens and the new earth? Are you premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial? Do you believe in the rapture of the church? Have you read the entire Left Behind series? Are you pre-trib? Are you mid-trib? And on and on the debates go. And so as we have our theories, as we study the scriptures, and as we call it eschatology, the study of the things yet to come, and we have various theories, but we don't have all the information, so too they had their theories about the coming of the Messiah, and they are now debating among themselves. And there's a division among the people. Secondly, we see the division among the leaders. You drop down in verse 32 to 36, they send the tipple police or the officers. And you're like, who were they? Well, they were of the priestly class as well. They were part of the Levites. So the priests and the Levites looked over the temple and there were some of them who were assigned, I guess they were the big guys. They were the bouncers in the temple, if you will. They were the security guards in the temple. And so the scribes and the Pharisees send the temple police, the officers to go and arrest him, but they don't. They come back in verse 45 And the officers to the Pharisees with no Jesus in tow. And they're like, why didn't you arrest him? Now, it's interesting because they could have said a number of things. They could have said, you know what? Uh, The city is full of thousands of people. The crowds were all around him. We couldn't get him isolated off by himself. We didn't want to start a riot. Uh, There's many people following after him. If we just went in and arrested the guy, or they could have referred to the fact that, you know what? We talked to him, and he actually said, I'm going away, and where I'm going, you won't be able to find me. And so you know what? It's not worth arresting him because he's soon going to leave and go away anyway, so it's no big deal. They didn't say any of those things. When the Pharisees said, why didn't you bring him back? Verse 46 says, here's their answer. No one ever taught like this man. There was something about the words of Jesus that stopped these officers in their tracks. No one ever taught like this man, Jesus. We're going to circle back around to that in a moment. But even them saying that then creates more division. And if you read just the last few verses that we read earlier, verse 47 to 52, you see sort of the senior religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees, are now coming down on the junior religious leaders, the temple police, and they are ticked off. They're like, have you been deceived as well? Uh, Has anyone in leadership around this place fallen for the trap of this charlatan? None of the leaders have fallen for him. Who are you? And then they turn on the crowd. All these God-fearing Jews who are visiting Jerusalem for the feast, that crowd is ignorant, and literally they say the crowd is cursed. And then Nicodemus speaks up. And their answer to Nicodemus is like, basically, are you that stupid? That's basically what they say. Are you from Galilee too? Have you been taken in by him? So all of that to say that Jesus faces a divided crowd. He is on trial in the court of human opinion. And many believed in him, but many rejected him. 
And in this conversation, this first chapter of this three-chapter conversation, there are all levels of interest and question. As you're scanning through the book, you will find there are some who are simply curious about him. Before he even arrives in Jerusalem, they're talking about him, wondering if he's going to show up. Some are quietly murmuring about him. So they're, they're talking to one another, but it says they, out of fear of the Jewish leaders, they do so quietly, not openly. As you read further on in the text, you're like, some people are actually ticked off at Jesus. They're so angry at him and his claims that they want to have him arrested. And many, you will see in this text, are simply confused. They're confused by his teaching. They're confused by his claims. They don't know what to do with this Jesus. And I would suggest that all of those groups have been with us in every generation of the church family. And all of those groups are with us today as we travel along this journey called faith. It is not uncommon for people to navigate their way through several stages of belief and questions and doubts. And I know every weekend when we gather that there are people who are gathering with us who say, you know what, this is all new to me. I wouldn't yet even claim to be a Christian like all you folks around me seem to be claiming. I'm not sure I actually fit in here. I'm curious. I've got questions. But I've also got a lot of doubts and I have a lot of unanswered questions and I'm wondering, I'm not sure that I believe. And if that's you, I would just say, welcome here. We are so glad you're here. And I hope you hang out longer. In fact, I'll just throw up a couple slides. There's a, a couple great events coming up that you might want to take advantage of. In, in just a couple weeks' time, here at the Downs Road campus, we are hosting uh, Apologetics Canada National Conference. And that is going to be a fantastic event. One of our former pastors, uh, Dr. Andy Steiger, and his team are leading this. There is a great agenda. Get on their website. Look at the speakers. It is a great event if you've got questions about identity and questions around the Christian faith. A little bit later in the spring, we're running another cycle of questioning Christianity. And again, this is Dr. Andy Steiger and one of our elders, Graham Nickel. They put together a six-week conversation, basically, where any question is fair game. Whether you're walking towards Jesus or you're walking away from Jesus and you've got questions or doubts, just pay attention to that. It'll be later in April, and those are good events for you to come to. That's free, didn't cost you anything. Back up the sermon clock. Here you go. In the middle of our text... We come to the second focus. And really, I think the main point of this text, Jesus claimed to satisfy. That Jesus satisfies us when he says, come to me and drink. And so I'll just reread that second verse there. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So we've got to press pause, and we've got to talk about the Feast of Booths. We've got to talk about what's going on here, because the context makes so much difference. What Jesus says here in chapter 7 about water, and then next week as we get to chapter 8, what he says about light, are filled with rich and deep connections specifically to this particular festival, the festival of Tabernacles. So the Feast of Tabernacles, as you're reading through the New Testament, you will see it identified in several different ways. It is called the Feast of Tabernacles. It is called the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Ingathering or Harvest, and the Jewish name for it is Sukkot. And there are two things happening at this feast. It's simply a fall harvest festival, much like North American Thanksgiving. It was the fall season, particularly the harvest of oil and wine, olives and grapes. Two main, both food groups and medicinal 
properties of oil and wine, and then also the later grains that came in in the fall. So much like our Thanksgiving. But it is also, and more importantly, a remembrance of the desert years. Mentioned this a little bit last weekend. As they wandered through the 40 years in the desert and they lived in temporary shelters, how they would grab wood and build a frame and then grab some branches and put up a temporary shelter. And it was one of three feasts that all adult males were required to come to Jerusalem three times a year. Deuteronomy 16 says there are three times a year that all men above age 20 should come to Jerusalem. Most often, they brought their families with them. Leviticus 23 says specifically, the Feast of Tabernacles is held in the seventh month on the 15th day. So you literally have the command to come and the date on which this festival is going to be held. So I mentioned it last week that families, even today, Orthodox Jewish families will build a temporary shelter and that this is the most popular of the Jewish feasts because kids love it because they get a camp outside for a whole week. You can live outside in a temporary shelter. So I wondered about this. I'm like, okay, modern day, where do you get these shelters? I wonder, there's got to be some online. Just Google it. I found one on Amazon.com. You can buy this sukkah shelter. And it's interesting that that picture alongside the ad said, it is guaranteed kosher. So I guess an Orthodox Jew would say this is okay. And over the decades, this week of celebration had all these ceremonies that grew around it and wrapped around those wilderness years, specifically around two symbols, water and light. Water by day and light by night. Now, light is next week's message. But the light was this, that in the temple square, they erected four large pillars. And up on top of those pillars, they grouped a a bunch of oil lamps. And each evening, as the sun was going down, somebody, somebody would shimmy up that pole and light those oil lamps. So you have four large pillars, and people would say, of course, there's no gas lights, there's no electrical lights, the city's dark except candlelight, and that in that week of festival, that as you looked across Jerusalem, you would see the glow of the light from the temple square, and you're like, what's that about? Because in those wilderness wanderings, do you remember how they were led? By a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So in this week of celebration, they put up four great pillars in the temple and lit them up for the seven nights of this festival. Water, every day, water was an important imagery. A priest would descend down the stairs from the temple to the pool of Siloam and take a golden picture and fill it with fresh water that had been piped in from the Gihon Spring outside the city wall. And as the priest is filling that picture, the the people who have gathered around will recite Isaiah 12, verse 3, with joy you shall draw water from the wells of salvation. And then they begin walking their way back up the south gate, back up the stairs to the south end of the temple with the people in procession, and they're singing. And you're like, what are they singing? Well, good question. There was a songbook for this week of celebration. It is Psalms 113 to Psalm 118. All total, about 85 verses. And so they would begin singing and following the priest up the hill. Psalm 113, from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same. They sang the same song we did, right? The Lord's name is to be praised. Psalm 114, the sea looked and fled. The Jordan turned back, remembering as he brought them out of Egypt. The sea opened up. And then they get to the edge of the promised land. And the Jordan opened up. Little later, tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, who turns the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a spring of water. 
And then finally, you get to Psalm 118, and it begins and ends with the very same phrase. The first verse and the last verse of Psalm 118 is this, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. So the priest has that pitcher of water. He's down at the Pool of Siloam, and he's beginning to make his way up the long stairway up to the temple. And the people are following him, and they put together palm branches, willow branches, myrtle branches, bound them together, and they're waving branches, and they're singing these particular songs. So all in, depending on how fast they walk, how fast they sang the tempo, did, I don't know, did they have drums with their singing, or was it mellow? Was it, you know, just slow? But probably 10 to 15 minutes to walk up and to sing through these 85 verses. They make their way to the top of the hill, and they go through the appropriately named water gate of the temple, the gate where the water was brought in, and they get into the temple square, and the priest steps up onto the altar, and they circle around, and then he pours out the water. And so by then, they have probably reached to the end of Psalm 118, and as the water is being poured out, the crowd shouts out one final time, three times in a row, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, his love endures. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, his love endures. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, his love endures. And that's the week, the Festival of Tabernacles. So water, water in the arid Middle East. Water, there would be no harvest next year if there wasn't water. And the cycles in that part of the world are the same today as they were then. The spring rains come fairly frequently. The summer, there may be a few showers. And the fall is the drought season. No rain, harvest season. And so as Zechariah 10, which was one of the verses that they would talk about in this time, says, ask rain from the Lord, because they knew that without the Lord giving water, that there would be no harvest the next year. But beyond that, the pool of Siloam was created specifically to capture those waters from Gihon Spring outside the city, because that spring was an intermittent spring. In other words, it would gush up water, thousands of gallons of water, but it would burst out like sort of like a geyser three to five times during the spring rainy season, maybe two to three times in the summer shower season, and then in the fall, maybe just once a day or some years, it would literally run dry. And so they piped that water in for storage in reservoirs, and the Pool of Siloam was one of them. Water representing God's faithfulness in the desert years. How for 40 years, the Lord brought them to pools and oases and springs. Nehemiah 9, the first time they celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, after they've rebuilt the wall, they say this, you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst, remembering those 40 years. But most important, most important at all, is that water is the main spiritual metaphor for life in that it gives life and it sustains life. Now, you will know this in our modern English. We use phrases like this all the time, uh, just in our modern vernacular. If you're looking for rest or renewal or refreshment, and so you might say that somebody, they're standing looking over the, the edge of the Grand Canyon, or here in the Fraser Valley, that on a beautiful blue day, we look at the the beauty, the majesty of Mount Baker, or we turn to the North Shore Mountains, or we're simply sitting and, and looking at the sky ablaze into a, a sunset night. And you will hear someone say, 
I just wanted to drink it in. I wanted to drink it in. I wanted to soak it in. I wanted it to just pour over me and renew me and refresh me. And it's one of the most common metaphors for life that we find in God and in God alone. Psalm 42, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Isaiah 55, this beautiful invitation, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Okay, now go back to John 7. The Feast of Booths. And for six days, that ceremony that we talked about has been repeated every day. The priest goes down, gets the water, they sing the songs, they go up the stairs. On the seventh day, that procession happens seven times. Takes them nearly all day long, just back and forth, seven times to the pool. Seven times on the great and final day of the feast, we're told, Jesus stands up and he cries out, is anybody thirsty? Is anybody thirsty? And I wonder at what precise moment did Jesus stand up and cry out? And I have to imagine in my mind that it was just as the priest is pouring out that final basin of water, there's a voice from the gallery in the background going, is anybody thirsty? Come and drink. Come and drink. And we dare not miss the impact of those words. That in the midst of one of the greatest celebrations of the year, Jesus basically says, all this talk about water and light is amazing, but let me tell you, I am the water and I am light. And just like Moses gave you water from the rock, well, I am the rock from which living water flows. And if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. Believe in me and you will live. Okay, so that's the text. It's one of those that I wish if we had a time travel machine, this would be one of those places I'd like to go back to. To just follow along in that week, a week of feasting and worship and family gatherings and reunions and rememberings. Uh, people came from all over Israel, thousands of people. They are camping all over the city and on the hills surrounding Jerusalem and in the surrounding villages. They had built their sukkah shelters or they had ordered one on Amazon. And each day they got out of bed and they streamed into the city, headed for the temple courts. And they brought along their branches, their palms and myrtles and willows and their desert fruit, the citron that they carried along. And maybe they spent the evening before going over and reciting from memory the words to the songs, Psalm 113 to 118, because they surely didn't have printed song sheets. So they had to know them off by memory. So it's going over again in the mind. We're going to sing the songs tomorrow, 85 verses long. And the conversations around the fire as parents are reminding their kids, God has been so good to us. Kids, you need to know God is so good. Let's tell you the stories from long ago because it's important. You need to know these stories. How when we were enslaved in Egypt, God showed up and he revealed his power through miraculous signs and wonders. And he led us out with the enemy on our tail and he opened the Red Sea and he led us through the desert and he crossed the Jordan with us. For 40 years, he took care of us. He brought food in the desert and water from the rock. And kids, all this blessing that we have around us today, even though Rome is in charge, all the blessings that we have, the peace and prosperity that we're living with, kids, you need to remember it all comes from his hand. It all comes from God's good hand. And if you remember nothing else from this week of camping out, kids, remember this. We give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. He never gives up. 
He has never failed us. He is always faithful. He is always good. And then on that last final day, Jesus grabs the microphone and he makes this audacious call. Are you thirsty? And you're like, are we thirsty? We are all thirsty. It's written all over our culture. It is written all over our pursuits and our desires and our dreams. Our chasing after power and pleasure and fame and fortune. Our desires for relationship, for love, for meaning. The thought that, oh, if I just had a little bit more money or maybe if I got one more degree behind my name or if I got the new car or if I got the dream home, then maybe I'm satisfied. And we hear it in the longing. The songs of our generation, I think Bono's famous one, the U2 song, still haven't found what I'm looking for. We see it in every epic film, a broken world that needs healing. And we hear it in the cry of our day as an entire generation seeking to figure out who they are and carving out an identity from a cultural smorgasbord of options. Is anybody thirsty? We're all thirsty. And the question is, will we come to Jesus and drink? And C.S. Lewis in his book, Weight of Glory, says this, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. We drink at the wrong wells. Jeremiah put it this way. He said, thus says the Lord, I remember back in the day, I remember when you loved me, when you walked with me, the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness. But a few verses later, he says, but my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So I'll ask you the same question that I asked back in John chapter 4, the woman at the well. Each one of us has to ask the question, where have I been drinking? Where have you been drinking? What wells have you been drinking from? John's gospel is really repetitive. 21 chapters trying to convince us to believe that Jesus is indeed the Christ. And in this week's text, Jesus says, are you thirsty? Then come to me and drink. Come to me and believe. And I know that every time we gather, that people are coming from all different walks of life. Uh, some who are new to the faith, some who are not even yet in the faith, but are exploring. And then many who are long-term walking in the faith. And many of you are fully convinced, fully committed, fully in, and you could give testimony how God has been your water and your light and your bread and how he has been so faithful that his love does indeed endure forever. But I know every time we gather that there are others who are saying that you're not sure about that. You are thirsty. You know you're thirsty, but you're not yet convinced that Jesus can satisfy. And I would say for both of those groups, Jesus' invitation stands. Because you know this, without water we die. Without water, you will last maybe seven or 10 days most, and then you will die. We must have water to live. And Jesus offers us not just a sip, but he offers us a fountain, 
A fountain of life, literally, he says, a well of life springing up within you, the very presence of God indwelling you by the Spirit, a well that will never run dry, that will satisfy and heal. No one ever taught like this, they said. We all need to draw water from that well. So I love both and solutions. I love my pie now and later. But Jesus doesn't give us the option of one foot in and one foot out. He calls for decision. And he draws a line and in essence repeats all the Old Testament warnings. Choose yourself this day whom you're going to serve. We stand at the wedding altar and we forsake all others. We go through the waters of baptism and we identify with Christ. We dedicate our children and we say, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And when we choose to drink at the well-named Jesus, we're saying to a watching world, there is nobody else who can satisfy, so I'm going to drink deeply. Because he lived the life that we could not live, a perfect sinless life. And he died the death that we deserve to die in our place. And then he rose victorious over sin and death and the grave. And then he turned to us and said, I did this for you, and there's nothing left for you to do except to plunge in. Plunge into the river of life. So if you're thirsty, come and drink. Why don't you stand with me? I want to pray for you. The teams are going to come lead us in worship. Father, thank you so much for the life that you offer us through your son, Jesus. A really practical metaphor because every single one of us, many times throughout the day, grab for a glass of water and we drink it down to quench our thirst. We know that our bodies would literally not survive without that drink of water. And at times when we're out in the dry and we're completely just dying of thirst, we say a cold glass of water quenches and satiates. And in the same way, Jesus, you said, I am the living water. Come to me and drink. And so, Lord, I pray for the men and women who are listening to this message this weekend. And I pray for those who don't yet know you as Lord and Savior, that you would open their eyes to see that in all of their hungering and all of their thirsting, that you are the one that they truly are hungry for. And that they would understand that they can come to you and drink. And then, Father, for many others who have walked you through you, for some for decades, that we would be reminded that the well is springing up new and fresh every day. There's living water for today, and we need you as much today as we needed you in the first moment of our salvation. So Lord, let us remind ourselves when we're thirsty that we come to you and we drink deeply. For your honor and your glory in our lives and our great joy. Amen.